I just, I had, I had nothing, you know, I had our suitcases and a few things, but no job, no idea what I'm doing. And so I did what I, what I knew. And that was to go work in the orchards and to help establish a new farm. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Finding rebirth and renewal on the farm. It's something that a lot of people have found in their personal stories of farming. And this week we hear from an artist and a teacher who is also a farmer and now started a farmer's market. She's got so much to share and such a cool story. Chelsea Putnam is her name and she has kind of a traditional Washington farming background in tree fruit, but then they also grow lavender and have tourism and lodging on their farm. So it's a really diverse perspective that she brings and a cool story where she never expected to be a farmer. And here she is, and she loves it. We've got a lot to get to. So I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast, and let's jump right in. Talk about what it is you guys do here. What is this? Well, Trinity Gardens thing, and what do you guys do? There's a lot of components to it. <clears throat> we started five years ago, and with the idea of just planting some lavender plants. My dad's an orchardist, and my mom's a retired nurse, and she got bored. <laughs> as you is as, that how she would characterize uh, it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She got bored being retired, and uh, they drove by this property. Uh, and it was too good of a deal to pass up, but it was just nothing was on here except for the mobile home and a shop. And so they kind of uh, tossed some ideas around about what to plant, if to plant anything. And we always went to Squim to visit my grandparents where, you know, lavender capital of the world. Yeah. And we loved it. We always loved it. And so my mom and dad decided lavender let's plant some lavender on this property and so uh year by year we planted a couple thousand plants each year and every year we were like how can we generate more revenue from this and not just have some random lavender plants in the ground like let's get people out here maybe we can make it a venue maybe we can hold some events like squim farms do and so it's just kind of evolved into this extensive uh, venue where we rent out accommodations on Airbnb. We have a shop on site where we sell all of our handcrafted lavender products. We distill, uh, we steam distill, not alcohol, just lavender essential oil. Uh, we will custom distill for other farmers too, because the, the distillation setup is quite expensive. So what's the difference between steam distillation and and using alcohol to extract the essential oil? (laughs) Well, um, that's a great question. So the steam distillation seems to be, from what we've talked to other farmers about, the way to distill the lavender to get the essential oil. Uh, Even though it is an expensive setup, it's one of the cheaper ways to extract the essential oil um, or 100% oil from the lavender. And I really don't know much about any other uh, distillation techniques. So I can't really speak on it too much. So yeah, what 
that was going to be my question. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you all do with lavender? And technically mm -hmm. we're cheating a little bit because this is real food, real people, but you mm -hmm. can't really eat lavender. You can. You can? Yes, you can. Okay, I'm learning so, something new already. <laughs> so we, amongst the other things that we do on the farm, there are many uses of the lavender itself. So we have five different varieties out here on the farm and they are all the same therapeutic qualities, but they have different uh, scent profiles and flavor profiles. So some are really good for using for culinary purposes, whereas some are better for just drying or using as a fresh bouquet um, or distilling to use as essential oil and products. So on the farm, we have two really good varieties. And what you would do to use lavender for food is you could dry the buds or use them fresh. And a lot of people will use it as a tea, mm. help them sleep at night. You could... Uh, what does it taste like? Uh, it depends on the variety. So I can't say I've ever like, tasted lavender. We'll have to do like a taste test of the dried yeah. buds. Uh, there, there's the ones that are really good for culinary purposes. They are sweeter. Some of them have kind of a vanilla note to them. And so... Of course, if you use use it in moderation, you can definitely overdo it. Uh, if you overdo it, it's got that soapy, you know, like mm -hmm. tastes like you're eating lavender soap or something. Mm -hmm. That also comes out in the variety that you choose to use for culinary purposes. But have you ever had a dessert with lavender in it or lavender ice cream or... I don't know if I have. Oh, my gosh. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. Maybe. But, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not that sophisticated. <laughs> that could be it. <laughs> You did grow up on a farm. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> yeah, um, explain that. Uh, where, where, where did you grow up? So I grew up in East Wenatchee, and we would spend our summers driving out here, working on our apple and cherry orchards, uh, where my dad, that's his primary. Um, out here being the Oh, yeah, George, George the George area. area. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we still have a couple of those farms, and we still work on them, and... Yeah, so primarily grew up working in tree fruit. Okay. Yep. Tree so fruit. So like kid. what 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 were your jobs as a kid? Oh my gosh. So <laughs> many. Yeah. So at 13, I actually my dad started teaching me to do payroll, which mm. was cool. So I got to learn a lot of the the backside of it, the number side. Uh, but then labor wise, we would do a lot of swamping, which means you uh, our pickers will pick cherries in their lugs, put the lugs down and move on to the next tree. And then we would come through and pick up all those lugs and put them on the blue line, which takes all the bins and the lugs and goes and loads them up into the truck. Just nice, easy, leisurely work. <laughs> oh, right? sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think I still have lower back pain from when I was oh, wow. 13. Yeah. <laughs> but as we got older, we got more responsibilities. And uh, now instead of breaking our backs, picking up lugs, uh, we have, uh, so my brother will probably dr drive the blue line or get to operate the equipment and then uh, all go through in quality control and kind of manage what the pickers are picking and things so, like that. So you still do all the tree fruit too? Yeah. And the lavender farm. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. I know. And in my spare time do pottery. <laughs> <laughs> and teach <laughs> well we're, we're gonna get into that oh, yeah yeah <laughs> we're gonna hear all about it um but okay so what all kinds of tree fruits do you guys do now so we just do apples and cherries now at one point we did pears as well uh however my my 
dad doesn't like how tedious pears can be. Mm. Um, you know, they're delicate. So we just stick to cherries and apples. So what's the name of that farm? Like- um, so we kind of operate under we call Putnam Family Farms because mm. we have three farms. We have Trinity Gardens Lavender Farm, obviously oh. the lavender. And then we have French Camp, which was the original orchard. Mm. And then we have uh, Liberty Ridge, which was the second orchard to come into the family. So how many acres total? Uh, we're considered a micro farm with just under 200 acres of cher- cherries and apples. Yeah. Which to a lot of people, they think a micro farm, they're like a half acre. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A micro farm, just under 200 acres. Yeah, and that's the tree fruit industry. I mean, it's just growing so rapidly, especially out in the basin. Uh, we have we have farms that are just hundreds of acres. You know, you drive one straight road and it's just all red delicious apples or yeah. all golden delicious or whatever that might be, you know. So how do you guys bring in the harvest? Like what's, you have to bring a lot of workers in to get that done? Yeah, well, the beauty in being kind of a smaller farm and established here, we we haven't really needed to take uh, take advantage of the, like the federal H-2A housing employees, recruiting them from out of the country. We have a lot of families that come back year after year after year. In fact, I've known some of these families since I was a child. So we, we have just kind of a rapport. It helps to have a great you know, field manager, um, who's been with my dad since they both started farming. So 30 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a lot of local workers from Quincy, George area, Royal city, Moses Lake. What about on the lavender farm? How much labor does that take? How big is that actual like lavender part? We have, uh, just over three acres planted in lavender and, uh, we don't hire anybody. It's just us. So my brother and I, and my dad still does, um, will hand harvest the lavender when it's time to cut or, uh, for distillation, usually around um, August, September time frame. We just come out here before the sun comes up because the bees, the bees wake up at a certain temperature oh. and they swarm the place. And so we uh, try to get, get up before them. I know all about that from Raspberry Farm youth Mm -hmm. (laughs) and being a little bit allergic to honeybees oh no really yeah it doesn't go very well no i think i've only been stung once out here well you're lucky oh yeah i just don't mess with them i just let them work the whole thing is you need to stay calm yeah i don't like it when you're worked up but i can't stay calm (laughs) around them so frustrating my dad would always say oh you'll be fine i'm like dad i don't no, I don't want to go out to the field. I, if I get stung, I'll be kind of like feeling sick for a few days. and I'll be fine. I was just going to ask, how allergic are you? Like, do you need an EpiPen or anything? They made me carry one for a while. I never yeah. had like a anaphylactic shock mm-hmm. reaction, but I would like swell like crazy. Ugh. Well, it's a good thing you didn't come out here in like June and July when everything was in bloom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I am used to being around them still and just <laughs> trying to maintain my chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maintain your chill that's funny so going back to growing up east wenatchee mm-hmm. working uh in fruit then what was your plan like did you want to be a farmer no 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 i was like so far my ideas of having a career path was so far from farming uh 
And I don't know why. I just, it wasn't my passion. It's not like I hated it. I loved coming out here in the summers and being a part of the family business. I just had, I wanted to be an art teacher. I, you know, I went off to college, uh, got my art degree and, uh, where'd you go to college? Pacific Lutheran university, Mm. little, little liberal arts school in Parkland, technically Tacoma is the address, but yeah. Yeah, my parents weren't too thrilled when I was like, I'm going to major in art. <laughs> like, what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> so what did you do then? Like, you got so your degree. I did. I did. I actually, I was, right when I was applying for uh, MFA programs, because really my goal was and still is to be a college professor, mm. teach fine arts at a university. So I was applying for master's programs and I got pregnant with my son. Mm. And so I made the choice to put that path on hold, the the path to an MFA, and I decided to uh, get married and go be a mom to a sweet little boy and live the military wife life. So we kind of mm. we went to Anchorage and then we lived in North Carolina, mm. and. Uh, from North Carolina, we actually uh, separated, my ex-husband and I, and I moved home because it was my only support system. And home is here in George, where yeah. my parents had just bought a lavender farm or a, a plot of land to be a lavender farm and the orchards. And so I just, I had, I had nothing, you know, I had our suitcases and a few things, but no job no idea what I'm doing. And so I did what I, what I knew. And that was to go work in the orchards and to help establish a new farm. And I, f- through this interesting, it was very therapeutic. I think the lavender farm, especially I have a real, I have a real emotional attachment to the lavender farm because it became this, uh, planting of life and growth and newness right in a time where I needed all that redirection and new growth. And so as we planted the lavender and it evolved, I've seen over the last five years, it's kind of been a symbol of how I've established here. And I never thought I would, uh, in agriculture and many other aspects of my life. But so what was that like going through all of that? Were you scared? No, I don't think I ever remember being fearful of the massive amount of change, but it's because I had the support of my parents. They've been my absolute rock and foundation to even even the disappointing decision to major in art. They were like, okay, well, if that's really what you want. And that's the approach they've always taken. And they've they're just open arm people and they greet everybody with love and support. And of course they're going to do that for their daughter and grandchild. They're like, we don't actually care about you. We just want Michael in our lives. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I never really felt intimidated and I still, I still wanted to teach art. Hence the reason why we're sitting in the studio, because before I got the job at the school district, uh, I, built this with my dad mm. and decided to start teaching art to small groups, you know, as a small business. And it brought more people out to the lavender farm right. where we could, you know, entice them and educate them on all things lavender. 
So why do you why do you do art and like ceramics? Is that kind of your big thing? Yeah, clay is my big thing for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll do all the other art forms and I teach all the other art forms. Uh, but clay, I don't know. There's something full circle about clay. You can make something sculptural and abstract and create you know, something wonderful from your imagination and try to sell it for lots of money if someone's interested. <laughs> um, or my favorite thing to do is uh, throwing on the wheel and making functional pottery because that's the full circle piece, I think, where you're taking something from the ground, from the earth, and uh, creating it into a form that's usable and uh, you can eat out of, you can drink out of, you can serve people and sit around a table and um enjoy as just what it is yeah the cat is that the cat where is the cat <laughs> outside I, I hear a cat in the the cat wanted to join the podcast that's i know i awesome. got all distracted too i was like what is it, it sounds like a baby crying uh, that's funny that's uh we have two boy cats and they're absolutely wild out there they're the farm cats they get all the gophers and the rats and my mom likes to feed them. She's like, oh, they can't starve. I'm like, well, if you feed them, then they're not going to get the gophers. Like, you yeah. have to starve them a little bit. Uh, what a cruel person. <laughs> they're fine. Did they you see be them? Hungry. They're kind of fat. <laughs> yeah, I think they're doing all right. Yeah, they're fine. <sighs> so you love the art. Mm -hmm. What And, and you, you teach now. Talk about what that experience has been like well, know, becoming a teacher it's been uh one of those experiences where you really just don't know until you're in it there's no amount of education or training that can prepare you to be in front of 30 kids six times a day that are in middle school <laughs> <laughs> seventh and eighth grade so i get to teach anywhere from 11 to 13 year old kids and uh, I didn't I didn't think that I would f just absolutely adore this age range because like I said my goal was to you know go on to college and mm -hmm. it still is but now I think I envision myself being at, in this age range to gain experience for a good 10 years or so you know at least unless I don't know it's kind of funny we make all these plans for our lives and then like I don't know, the universe or God or, you know, whatever you believe in, likes mm -hmm. to throw monkey wrenches in just to, for... <laughs> and that's the story of COVID too, right? Yes. And so this is my first year teaching and it's like all this like amped up, amped up, like doing all this stuff and working till exhaustion it actually ruined a relationship I was in. Mm. Um, maybe I let it, but... <laughs> But no. um, I just really devoted all my passion and time into being good at this job. And I could because, you know, all the farms are seasonal. It works out perfectly. Go teach in the winter time, come out here in the spring and fall, or excuse me, spring and summer. And uh, it was just like a perfect little, the missing puzzle piece. So anyways, I just poured everything of myself into this. And then it was like, oh, this pandemic is happening, you know, schools are closed for six weeks. And I was like, oh, that's kind of sad, you know, but I'll see you in six weeks. It'll be a good break. And then without even getting to say bye or anything to all these kids, they're just like, yeah, actually, we're not going back to school. And it has been interesting, absolutely interesting and emotional and all the words. Emotional how? 
Well, it wasn't at first. And I, and I actually didn't realize how emotion, the emotional impact it actually had on me until recently. Uh, emotional in a lot of ways. I see the kids and how, how they grow up, grow up in our area. We're a, you know, we're a low income, uh, poverty area. And, uh, we have about I think it's about 85 to 87% of our students are under the poverty line. And so when they started talking about this distance learning thing and having kids do online learning, like we have kids that live in houses with 10, 15 people and they're not even houses. They're like single, they're single wide mobile homes. They don't have internet or a phone that they can zoom meeting their teacher. Are you kidding me? It was just so, it was just so um, privileged to just be mm. like, oh, they can just distance learn from right. their laptops. And so right. we had this big push on uh, getting kids free meals. We have kids that'll, they don't eat unless they're at school. They don't get food. And which like just makes me so, oh, I could just go into it. But so it was really emotional trying to reach reach these kids and not only uh, check in on their welfare and their living situations and are you getting food? Are you getting your basic fundamental needs to survive? Uh, because we're not going to get to see you for months and months and months. But now we're trying to get them laptops, hotspots, things like that to get them on board with this technology and and learning and getting them information and then it's just been confusing on for everybody because there's so many questions and it feels like there's never an actual solid answer and as soon as there's an answer something else changes and it's a domino effect of you know more questions and no answers have you heard anything about next year there's a lot of speculation and talk about not going back to school at the beginning of the year. Yeah. But I kind of, I really try to not invest a lot of my time and energy into um, planning for that. Because just like I said, everything just keeps changing. Yeah. Everything just keeps changing. What has COVID meant for you guys here on the farm? Uh it has impacted us a lot more than I thought it would mm. uh, negatively as far as uh, generating revenue. Uh, we're eight miles from the Gorge Amphitheater. That's where a lot of our people come that rent the Airbnbs mm. here on the Lavender Farm, which then directly correlates to customers in our shop, people learning about it, buying our products, whatever. So the can- the cancellation of concerts has, you know, Decreased. I would have never thought of that. Right? Oh my gosh. Also, we can mark up the prices a lot because <laughs> there's nowhere to stay around here. Yeah. There's nowhere. They are building a, a hotel in George. Did you see that? I did. Yeah. And a Five Guys burger. Oh, nice. I, I did not see that. Yeah. In George, Washington. Yeah. Imagine Very cool. that. But uh, so it's been, you know, we've we've noticed a decline in our normal clientele our normal foot traffic, but we've gotten a lot of longer stays out here, which is nice. People working in, uh, in the area for, you know, a month or two weeks at Mm. a time, but we haven't gotten a lot of people just coming and visiting us. Uh, 
which is so frustrating because we paid a crap ton of money to get signs on the freeway and we mm. waited an entire year to get them up and they got up this season right before we opened and then it was like oh great that was kind of for nothing because no one wants to break the rules and we have yeah. we have some people coming by but um as far as the orchards though that's the one that surprised me that it's already impacting impacting us because sales have gone down drastically of produce and food everywhere. I mean, you hear about all these potatoes and onions getting dumped right. because, you know, all the restaurants are in business. So there's a huge portion of the market that is, is no longer buying produce. And we're seeing it in our apple prices because it's our last year's crop being bought now. And it's been very disappointing. That's too bad. Yeah, it is. It is. Not to mention it's it's a really light crop for cherries this year all around the basin. And uh, so, you know, couple that with just mother nature and then the economy. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, I think that my dad's going to do a lot of praying. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of praying. Because at this point, you know, it just takes one one bad storm and the small crop gets demolished and then yeah bad season how big are cherries versus apples how big guys? are they like as as far as like oh it's like much the size a, i was like smaller no like as <laughs> as a percentage of your operation oh i see i see yeah. uh we are we're converting slowly to more cherries than apples mm. uh but right now is pretty pretty close to equal Pretty close to equal. And we have uh, a range of varieties within each mm -hmm. fruit. Yeah. It's crazy. We don't know what's going to happen next, right? I know. And, and that's just kind of farming in, in its nature, though, because we're always dealing with the unknown. Looking at our, you know, the 10-day weather forecast, preparing for a sudden frost or some crazy... I mean, out here in the basin, the weather, the weather patterns are very interesting. And we'll get hail... We get, you know, in a bad spring and rain, not a whole lot, but it'll happen in the spring. We don't have a lot of rainfall, but it just takes one of those bad storms and it's all, it's all gone. But we, where our farms are, we see this really interesting weather pattern where it will actually see storms just kind of like go around us. And it's, mm. it's very frightening looking at these black thunderclouds and we're like oh no is it gonna go over us there's something about just the geography and the wind and it has to do with the gorge and then the mountains it just kind of skates around us Weird. and we watch it go around and then go over to Ephrata or moses lake we're nice. like well it sucks to be them <laughs> but what if you want those storm what if you need the irrigation i don't think that's ever an issue yeah, <laughs> yeah no yeah. we never want a storm <laughs> nice. unless for some reason we ran out of water and but I don't think that'll happen. Yeah. So how do you guys irrigate your crops? Um, that would be a really good question for my dad. But we, uh, because he has this really cool nerdy interest in the way this, we have like a federal water uh, like project mm -hmm. that happened out here. But we get our water from canals. Most right. people think, oh, they live right next to the Columbia River. They probably just get their water from the Columbia River. No, we get it from lakes. Um farther away from here that they have um situated 
to irrigate the basin through canals, a series of canal systems. So you have to like do the tubes and stuff to get the water out of the canals mm -hmm. or like how? Yeah. In fact, we have it here. I could show you a very small scale version of that. Nice. Yeah. We do like floating the canals in the summer though. That's fun. Your own lazy river? Yeah. Yep. What, what if you like go too far though and... Oh, well, then that's, yeah, that would, you don't want to go under the road. <laughs> There's spots where they stop. Yeah. You have to just get out of it at some point. <laughs> it's interesting that you brought up um, the gorge mm -hmm. in George. Yeah. Everybody knows the gorge. Yeah. Right. And I, I hadn't, I would have never thought that would have that kind of impact on your farm. Mm -hmm. What's that like having that? huge concert space in this little tiny community uh so i'll i'll speak personally first it's freaking awesome like <laughs> it, and if you know the right people you can kind of get in with yeah. the right crowd and like you know cheaper tickets or maybe the tickets all didn't sell so yeah. here's a couple yeah, you know nice. um but it is amazingly fun we all look forward to it we get groups of friends together we go meet down there we'll camp down there even though we all live like 15 minutes away and it, it is we it is such a blast it's a great time so then um economically it helps our community yeah big time because it's not like who drives through quincy i mean not semis basically yeah i mean it's not like we have a main freeway coming through here. I mean, I-90 just misses it by, you know, mm -hmm. 15 miles. So we have a really small town with some cool things to do, but not a lot of people coming through to experience them. So in the summertime, when the, uh, when the gorge is up and running on the weekends, we have people coming down and staying at Crescent Bar and staying in those like little river side towns like Sun Sunland. They're not towns. They're like basically towns, mm -hmm. um, Sunland and coming to cave B and coming out here to do stuff like, Oh, let's check out the la this random lavender farm and cruise into Quincy and get something to eat. So we have this really cool rotation of more touristy people, but feeding our economy in a different way than we get the other, um, months of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the best show at the gorge? There's rotations, but watershed's always fun as yeah. a whole, just yeah. as a whole experience. Yeah. Uh, even if it's not my favorite person playing, it's just, it's the atmosphere. Yeah. That's pretty cool. The best show I've seen there was, um, well, who am I thinking of? Have you ever heard of Shovels and Rope? No, I haven't. Yeah, they're kind of, they're newer-ish. They played, Kings of Leon was really good. Mm. Uh Let's see. There's some that I only remember part of. <laughs> I won't ask. <laughs> I went home early. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, there, you know, there's. I have not honestly seen a bad show there. Dave Matthews is famous for oh, playing. Yeah. Does he do one there every year? Every still? year. There was one year he didn't, but he, yeah, he came back from you know retirement or whatever because it's like his favorite place to do a show he'll, he'll like rent out the entire cave b area just for him and his crew and so his family cave b is like a little resort yeah it's a it's a winery that's grown over the years so interestingly enough cave b uh owned originally owned by a surgeon and his wife 
they had the original stage where the Gorge Amphitheater is now. So they had their KV winery and then they had this stage where it was so small, but they would put on, you know, they'd have people come and, and then, and they got bought out by live nation or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think it was live nation or maybe there was a company before live nation, but, and then it grew to what it is now. There's a 26,000 people occupancy is huge. Um, and so cave B sits right next to the gorge amphitheater still is just separated by a chain link fence and they have an inn where there's a nice fancy restaurant. Then they have all these yurts out there sitting on looking out on the gorge. Uh, they have these, uh, cliff houses and now they have, um, in that area, it's not owned by cave B. Also they have a winery with a tasting room, really good wine. And it's gone through ownership changes where actually it's now separated. The winery is separate from the inn now, where it, whereas it didn't used to be. But they have these kind of tiny houses. They're not really tiny houses. They're just a really smaller version of a modern-looking apartment. And they're all separated. And they're kind of just separated probably by, I don't know, 20, 30 feet. And there's a few of them out there. People have bought in them. And rent them out on Airbnb for people going to the concert. So it's kind of turned into this little villa resort thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've looked out in that direction at a concert, but not like, what is that over yeah. there? Yeah. Well, and a lot of those things are kind of hidden. It's, you know, kind yeah. of hilly or whatever. And yeah, you have to kind of drive down in it to really, to really get it. So many people have been right yeah. here in your neighborhood, basically. Yeah. And don't go anywhere other than KV in the Gorge. <laughs> crazy yeah so what what's in what's on your uh playlist right now what are you listening to these days oh good question i'm on this kick so i listen to pandora a lot yeah uh and i go between podcasts and music Mm. and when i start feeling a little like weird i'm like oh i just need to listen to some music so i have my two favorite is jack johnson pandora station which plays some really good upbeat stuff i like to listen to when i'm in the studio i have uh highly suspect which is a little harder <laughs> and mm. i like to listen to and like s- scream sing along in my yeah, car yeah. or in the shower or whatever uh and then actually a third one being when i'm just like chilling iron and wine have you heard of them oh yeah i love yeah, love love them and no matter what mood i'm in i can turn them on and the whole station's good you know very chill yeah yeah we got like a chill middle of the road and like super hard (laughs) so you got a lot of tattoos oh gosh how'd Um, you get into that well when i was 18 i made some regrettable decisions Uh oh. (laughs) yeah i wasn't so much a rebel i didn't go out partying or anything i just went and got tattoos without permission but i was 18 so So you didn't need permission Oh, I got, my first one was 18. I got with my sister and it just, I don't know. I just love putting art on my body, Mm. you know? And there's that, that weird addicting adrenaline thing that goes along with the pain that people talk Mm. about the pain being addicting or whatever. Yeah. yeah. What's the word? Masochist? I'm not one of those. (laughs) That's the word I'm thinking of. (laughs) Um, So... I got my first tattoo when I was 18, and then uh, from there, I just, I don't know, I'd get just like a a little itch. I was bored, and 
I just go to different artists, check out their work, and get a tattoo. And as I got older and appreciated it more and also made more money because tattoos are expensive, I started finding people that did way better work and made my other ones look a little better. But the one funny, not funny, very irresponsible story on one of my tattoos. Um, I, at PLU, my freshman year, I was dormed with a junior and she had a boyfriend that was a tattoo artist. Oh boy. Yeah. And I'm worried about where this is going. (laughs) It's not so bad. Uh, they would, he played soccer for Wenatchee fire actually. And so, and my parents still lived in Wenatchee at that time. And so when I drove home, I would take them. And they would just carpool with me. And to repay me for all that, he was like, oh, I'm going to give you this awesome tattoo that you've been wanting. And um, I was like, great, you know, like, where should we do it? And he said, oh, we'll just do it in the dorm room. And so we did it in the dorm room. And, it, you know, it was like, fine. He would do his girlfriend's tattoos in our dorm room, too. Yeah. Definitely breaking a lot of rules. <laughs> but he, we, you know, he was clean about it. And uh, it, it was set up very professionally, you know. And, however... Uh, the caveat to that was that I didn't know him as well as I thought I did. And he actually had a really bad drug problem. Mm. And I don't know if he was like withdrawing or too high or something, but he absolutely did the worst job I've ever seen. I stopped him in the middle. I was like, this is, you can't keep going. I don't know what's wrong with you right now, but this looks horrific. And I had to, over the years I've gone, it kind of covered up, but. No way. Yeah. So how many tattoos do you have? I don't count anymore because they kind of like blend together. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you count that as one or three? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I've sat in the chair probably 25 times. Wow. <laughs> so what's your favorite? My favorite is I have this big piece on my leg and it goes from my knee to my hip. And it was about. Oh gosh, she this girl that did the tattoo. We were we were like best friends at the time. It was up in in Alaska. Just two peas in a pod, and it, just one of those really cool connections. She's an incredible artist. We sat for thirteen hours, I think it was. Wow. Straight, and that was probably the most intense thing I've done ever, other than birthing a child. But I would say they're equal. Really, <laughs> that intense? Yeah, it was it was interesting experience. Um. So that's my favorite. And I think it has a lot to do with, I mean, the art is beautiful, but there was a lot of meaning. Like she drew this original piece for me on a piece of paper and it wasn't even for a tattoo. She just was like, I made this for you. She's an incredible artist. And I was like, I'll make you this sculptural piece like of, you know, clay artwork if you tattoo that on my leg art trade yeah 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 so she tattooed it on my leg i made her a sculpture and we have a little piece of each other forever and ever (laughs) yeah so what do you tell someone like me who has zero tattoos and is very scared (laughs) of getting a tattoo are you oh you well i have two things against me number one i'm a total wimp like needles or pain pain oh i'm just a total wimp with pain (laughs) and secondly i could never i think tattoos look cool but i could never commit to something that would be my first advice because i've like if i could get one for a year or five years even then it would be like okay yeah we can do this it's the commitment thing to a design i think that would be my biggest piece of advice especially because i've made really um 
spontaneous decisions to get tattoos that have very little meaning you know, just because mm-hmm. it looks cool. Right. Um, and that might be, you know, that might be someone's thing. It's like they, you don't have to have a meaning. It could just look cool on your body or whatever. Right. Uh, but just know that that's what you want and think about it and think yeah. about it again and think about it again. Because there now that I have a, I call it a real job where people, <laughs> ha- you know, see me in the public yeah. eye and kids see me and they see my tattoos and they're like, you know, where'd you get those, Miss P? Are you in a gang? Like, <laughs> no, we... dork. <laughs> but um, well, that used to be more of a thing, but I think it's getting less and less as more and more really people is. learn to appreciate the art of. I think tattoos. so. Yeah, so some are very tasteful for sure. Um, I have some finger tattoos that um, I can't. I can't necessarily hide super well. Some of my rings hide them, but that's probably the most unprofessional ones that I have. So the another piece of advice is like consider what you want to do with your life, how you want people to see you. If you want people to look at you and be like, sick face tat, bro, then get your face tat. <laughs> then do it. You do you. Yeah. But I don't know. It's subjective to the person. But yeah. if you have any doubt, don't do it. Actually, in my boredom, or as some of my stir craziness, I shouldn't say boredom. Only boring people get bored. In my like being stir crazy, I have been a millisecond away from getting a tattoo gun and like just training myself to do and it. And doing it on yourself. <laughs> well, my brother actually volunteered himself as a canvas. <laughs> really? I I've talked to a lot of tattoo artists. You don't just jump in and start doing it on people. Oh. There's ways, you know, you can train on pig skin or you can train on, I think there's some melons that even you can like tattoo into and has some consistencies. That's correct. But get a little practice. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, a couple hours, try it on some pig skin and then get my brother to lay down for me. <laughs> you have a brave brother. Oh, I know. <laughs> or stupid. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe both. <laughs> so what's been the hardest time on the farm, this mm. whole journey that you've been on? The hardest time. It's all been challenging, which is good. The Definitely the lavender farm has been challenging in the sense that we, the four of us, my mom, my dad, my brother, and I, uh, work through a lot of ideas together Um but we do a good job. So it's not been hard. It's just been, like I said, challenging. I think the hardest time that we've experienced is we've had, we had a couple years ago, like three really bad years in a row on the orchards, you know, crops, not great return, not good. Just, you know, all, all the components that it really has to, the stars have to kind of really align to get to turn a really good profit, generate revenue, especially when you're just a small private farm. Uh, We thought we were going to have to sell everything, everything, all of it. And the banks wouldn't loan us any more money uh, because we've had multiple bad years. It was, it was really, really frightening to imagine all of it getting sold. Cause it's like, well, now what do we do? Right. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, so what were you doing t- during that time to deal with that? Um, just continue to putter along and work and do yeah. the best we can to keep it keep it moving and keep it going. And during that time is when we were, 
you know, establishing the lavender farm. It wasn't generating revenue like it does now. We didn't have weddings out here yet. We didn't have the Airbnb. We were still trying to dump money into it to make it what it is. So we were just like, maybe we have to get rid of the lavender farm too. And, you know, my brother and I always got paid though. We always got paid. My dad made sure of that. My mom made sure of that, which is good. Again, always very the rock. Yeah. They're the foundation. Um, they're providers for sure. But that, you know, lots of praying on my dad's end, that's for sure. And my uncle's involved in the farm, his my dad's brother. Mm. And so he he has a, a fairly large role on the orchard side of it. Um, lots of talking, lots of trying to just figure out solutions. Uh, that's, that's more of my dad's role, uh, than us just kind of waiting, just waiting to see how the next season turned out. And fortunately, right when we thought we were going to have to sell everything, we, (laughs) that cat. Yeah, I can hear the cat again. (laughs) Is it going to show up on here? I don't know. (laughs) We'll we'll have (laughs) to find out. Right when we thought we were going to have to sell everything, my dad was like, one more year. We're going to give it one more year and give it everything we got. And if if it's another bad year, it's done. We're done. And that year, we had the best season mm. we've ever had. Like one of the orchards produced the best crop of cherries my dad had seen in the 28 years of farming it. Mm. It was unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And it kept us afloat just enough. We had to have the best season of his whole farming career to just barely keep us afloat. So, it, yeah, it was crazy. And then the year following that, we actually had another great year. So it just kind of put us one more step up, and which is good because this year does not look great. I remember a year or two, one year in specific when I was a kid. I was like, we're not sure if we're going to survive. Mm. I remember my dad had to let go of the rest of his crew. I was like, okay, we as a family, we're just going to do the rest of the harvest ourselves. Wow. And that was scary. I think because that's all I had known. Mm-hmm. Think of like, what are we going to do? Like move into town? <laughs> that sounded like the most depressing thing in the world to me and at the, the time. Towny people. <laughs> yeah. Dad would just go to a job. We couldn't be together on the farm all the time. I don't know. I, I mm-hmm. think there's pe- something that people don't understand about the togetherness of farming yeah. with your family. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's very strengthening because you you go through moments like that. It's not just all the people think, oh, you farm apples and cherries. You guys are probably so loaded. You're so rich. <laughs> no, not at all. Not yeah. at all. <laughs> We're broke and tired. <laughs> what do your parents yeah. do? <laughs> Well, and but then people honestly will say, and this is a little bit harsh, but this is either they'll say it or they're thinking it. They'll say, well, so why do you do it then? Mm-hmm. And that's the hard part to explain. Yeah. How do you explain that? It's, I don't know. It, I kind of think it goes for me. Mm-hmm. And this is how I answer that question. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about that needing, needing new growth and change in my life. It was a beautiful, symbolic, physical way to like see that through in my life. It's kind of like raising a kid almost too. You know, you're putting something in the ground, you're nourishing it, you're loving it. You're 
over time growing it into something that will have an end result that people will enjoy, especially berries. Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. What they don't enjoy apples and oh. lavender and cherries. Well, I'm just saying, yeah, I guess that was more personal. I love berries. <laughs> I get a little tired of apples and cherries. But you love berries. I love berries. But don't like apples or cherries. Oh no, I do like apples and cherries. And so TMI probably. But I have Fair. like an iron trained gut to cherries. You know, some people yeah. can't eat a whole lot. Yeah. I can eat them all all day long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I endorse this. <laughs> I do love cherries. I, I, it's just interesting that you say that because you say, oh, I love berries, mm -hmm. raspberries in particular, which my dad grows. I'm not a huge fan of. You've just been around them too much, huh? They like the smell is like everyone else likes it. And to me, it just smells like work. Yeah. It oh, smells yeah. like, okay, this smells like harvest, which I mean, it has its own like good memories mm -hmm. associated with it, but not like I want to eat that. Yeah. I, I can't explain it beyond yeah. that. Oh, it I'll, I will not pay for apples and cherries in the store. I won't, unless my son like really wants apples, but also, and I'm sure you understand this too, like your, your standard of like seeing that produce in the stores on their shelves is like, what? <laughs> Those cherries are $8.99 a pound and they're like being cherries and they're yeah. tiny and they're yeah. kind of wrinkly. <laughs> I'm just like. I'll yeah. get some tomorrow at harvest. Yeah, I see berries in a plastic clamshell in December, and they're pale, yeah. and they're from South America, <laughs> and it's like, why? You're like $10. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. So expensive. But that I think that's a component that we're really lucky to have growing up producing those things is we get to experience the, that produce in its most highest quality form right off the tree there's nothing better and you know once you pass through and get the stuff that's good for the stores and all i don't know about berries you know how much fruit is left on those trees at the end of the season it's like a devastating amount i just want to pick it all and take it to all the food banks but why is it left behind not good enough quote not good enough you know it's not up to standard and right now we our consumers are so picky yeah so picky that if a granny smith apple that when you look at a granny smith apple in the store general public views a granny smith apple is um you know a nice like vibrant green with some speckles on it but there shouldn't be any pink or yellow so right. when we're delivering to the to our warehouses our packing sheds if it has a spot of discoloration, any color other than green, like they throw it out because the consumer doesn't want that. But what people don't understand is those spots of color are from where it sat in the sun and soaked and formed more sugars than the rest of those yeah. apples and they taste better. So yeah. it just, oh, I could get on a soapbox about that, but. This is kind of like the ugly produce movement, right? Isn't yeah. that kind of a growing thing? Yes, and I'm so happy for that. Yeah, that's I like that movement. I used to grow a lot of produce out here, actually, and sell it at farmer's markets mm. and to the restaurant at Cave B. Oh, my gosh, so much work, very little return. Yeah, And it was just me doing it on an acre of land. Mm. Um, like what would you grow? Like anything I could. Mm. And I just really wanted to see what would grow out here and how I could farm it. Uh, and organically too. Uh, I learned a lot, trial and error. But yeah. 
stuff that grows really well out here, cucumbers, lemon cucumbers, tomatoes, uh, broccoli will not grow out here. We have, we have some insects that are attracted from other circles and crops and maybe even the trees around us that would just demolish any kind of cauliflower or broccoli before it could even come up. Um, eggplant grows really well out here. Uh, let's see. Lettuces grow very well out here. Any leafy greens, really. So I got to really trial and error that and gain this appreciation for the ugly, the ugly produce movement, right. you know. Now, you have been involved with the whole farmer's market thing too, right? Yeah. So my my closest friend here in town and I started it four years ago. Started what? The like, farmer's market. Yeah. Like which one? Like The only one Quincy's ever had. So it's a Quin Quincy? Quincy farmer's market. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. Well, How did you do it? Oh my gosh. In fact, we have some evolving changes that are about to occur with that mm. too that I'm very excited about. Mm. Uh Interestingly enough, the heart of one of the most thriving agriculture towns in our state, there was no farmer's market. And when I first moved here, I was like, why isn't there's this not what? Why hasn't anyone tried to do this? Uh. There's been talk about it. And some people that are like, that'd be cool. I'm going to do that one day. Well, I was at a, a school district event and I met my friend who's around my age. And my mom was like, Hey, I know you want to start a farmer's market. Meet my daughter. This is Chelsea. She wants to do one too. And then we've been inseparable <laughs> ever since. And it was quite the process. And we, you know, we wanted to do it right. Ask, you know, we approached city council, said, here's our presentation. Here's our plan. Do we have your approval? We want to use one of your parks. We ran around. We obviously got their approval. We went around asking for sponsorship from the businesses in town. And we raised about, Fifteen thousand dollars nice. from the businesses supporting us and being what we called charter members, mm -hmm. and in six months from meeting each other and talking, we started the farmers market, and we started out with twelve vendors, nothing big, yeah, pretty small, and we had some entertainment at the park, and then the next year we had a top amount of twenty-four vendors. And then the year after that, we had up to like 42 on one of our markets. Mm. Vendors from all over, wow. only selling handmade or homegrown, you know, no commercial stuff. And this year is looking like there's going to be a lot of big changes because the parks are closed and the city doesn't want us to be at the park if they're not allowing the public to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, it looks hypocritical, which I agree. So now we're looking at um, kind of redesigning the market and relocating mm. it to a separate section in the city, which mm. we were at a park kind of off. It was a really obscure location. We had a hard time directing people out there. This new move uh, would bring business to the local businesses on the main street in, in Quincy. It would be on the oldest street in town uh, where my apartment is actually. 1906 building <laughs> and uh you know some restaurants a winery a catering business a sandwich shop it would be on a street with all of that and space enough for families to play in the grass areas sit and hang out have music and the whole street would accommodate up to like 48 vendors very comfortably with social distancing yeah because that was a whole issue even like in seattle i yeah. was following the farmers markets there they were closed for a while yeah 
And people were like, well, if the grocery store is open, right? why not the farmer's market? Oh, yeah. I have lots of feelings about it, too. And all this essential vendor stuff. Like, there's a list of essential businesses. I have to turn down some of my most loyal vendors that have been with us from day one because they're not, quote, essential. Because why? They're growing No, because they're, they're crafting certain things that aren't essential. But... I'm like, hey, can you bake some cookies real quick? Because you can sell food. Right. Obviously. So it's 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 about food. Like Yeah, food, food has to be food can thing. be sold. Um, especially, you know, obviously produce. And then we can have uh home improvement slash home decor, which is interesting mm. because that kind of incorporates some of our crafters. Right. You know, they make stuff to decorate your home or right. improve it uh crazy yeah and then um like maybe i can see home improvement but home decor right is that really essential lowe's and home depot are open right Mm -hmm. yeah so oh and uh uh, health and sanitation so people that make soap like our farm can be there yeah interesting it's very interesting it's so wishy-washy so what's the future for you (laughs) The future for me, I would like to stay close to this area so I can keep being involved in the farms. I'll never leave the farms, but I would like to go back to the Wenatchee Valley and live there. Uh, I would like to teach there in one of the school districts over there. I just, I love the valley, you know, I love the area. I love Quincy too. Like my heart will always have a place here Um, or I'll have a place in my heart for Quincy. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to, I am going to get my master's degree this, this summer Mm, Wow! and, uh, it's like an online program. So it's not affected by this COVID crisis. Thank goodness. Uh, that'll, that'll just get me more established, you know, in the education system. And then I'd like to eventually once Mike's grown up and I mean, he's almost eight. So in 10 years, I would love to go get my MFA. Like I planned be a college professor. Awesome. Yeah. And still, as you can see with all the things that I kind of like, I have a lot of, I like a lot of irons in the fire. I really like to stay busy and engaged and challenged. So it's a downfall sometimes uh, because then I really spread myself really thin. I don't believe that we can multitask. There's only half-assing. And so <laughs> I can I can tend to get a little dense sometimes. Um, yeah, so... I would like to cut back on some of my involvement in things. And really what I see for myself is um, teaching maybe even at Central because it's so close Mm. and farming here. Awesome. Yeah. So thank you so much. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. I love that that cat interrupted us at one point in that interview. And I actually, if you didn't catch it on our our Instagram, uh, I I shared that as kind of a sneak preview to this episode. Make sure to follow us for more content like that. Sneak previews, uh, behind the scenes stuff. We're going to work on getting more pictures and info of the guests we have and the stuff that's going on behind the scenes with the podcast. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop. Super glad that you're subscribed and you're plugged into what we're doing here to share the real stories of the people who grow our incredible food here in Washington State. 
We think it's just so important to know who your food is coming from. Uh, again, subscribe, uh, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and check out realfoodrealpeople.org. And also uh, give a big thank you to our sponsors. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming. Giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org. And by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.